0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 82. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are featuring segments from an event that we participated in this past weekend called Wildlife Awakening, which was presented as a part of the Sausalito film series in Sausalito, California. The event was a huge success, with a sold-out crowd and a series of three short film screenings and presentations. The first segment of the event was focused on the vaquita. And after screening our short film about this critically endangered porpoise called Searching for the Vaquita, I moderated a discussion with Dr. Francis Gulland, who is the senior scientist at the Marine Mammal Center and an expert on vaquita conservation. Next, we featured a presentation from the co-founders of the conservation group Caminando, Milton Yaselga, and Kimberly Craighead. Milton and Kimberly are studying the impact of forest fragmentation on the jaguar population in Panama and have made some fascinating discoveries to share with us. And our final presentation came from Amy Baird, who works for the Big Life Foundation, uh, an NGO that has organized a massive anti-poaching program in East Africa and has had a measurable positive impact on elephant poaching in Kenya and Tanzania. First, we're going to hear from Cheryl Pop with the Sausalito Film Series, who opened up the evening's event this past Sunday.
1: Thank you and welcome for joining us this evening. Uh, We've never had such a packed house, so I think we've hit a nerve that resonates with a lot of people. I wanna start by offering very special thanks to our longtime sponsor, The Logic Cavallo Point, who have continuously provided us with this amazing venue. Um, Our planet, as you all know, is facing historical and truly unprecedented levels of stress, levels of stress that we've really never seen before, including the devastating effects of climate change, with animals and our ecosystem probably suffering the most with many species facing extinction through brutal decimation of their habitats, poaching, and neglect. With this crisis, it's going to take passionate leaders and organizations and filmmakers, many of whom you're going to meet this evening, to make a change. But we can all do our part, even on a very local, individual level. Um, Tonight you're going to hear about animals and terrain that are even at greater risk the vaquita porpoise, jaguars, those beautiful cats, and elephants. And you're going to learn about the amazing work that, the orga- that these organizations are doing to help them, including our own Marine Mammal Center in West Marin, here in Sausalito. <laughs> we love Marine Mammal Center, um, as well as Caminando and the Big Life Foundations. Uh, we really thank these groups for partnering with us in this event. So thank you for supporting their efforts, as well as the Sausalito film series. In the words of my dear colleague, Antonio Capretta, who introduced me, we are blessed with a majestic, soulful and magical planet. And tonight we pay tribute to all of its creatures. I would now like to introduce your moderator for the evening, Matt Podolsky. Armed with degrees in environmental science and cinematography, Matt launched a career as a field biologist. But then in 2011, he founded Wildlands, bringing biologists and filmmakers together to produce films that would impact critically important wildlife conservation issues. Since then, he's produced several films, including the Emmy-nominated Bluebird Man. He's flown in from Boise, Idaho, where he lives, to join us this evening, and we're delighted to have him with us. So please welcome Matt. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for that, that wonderful introduction. Um, it, it's really an honor to be here in Sausalito. Um, I want to thank the Sausalito Film Series for putting on this amazing event. This crowd is amazing. Um, thank all of you guys for being here. This is fantastic. It's really, um, it, it makes me feel really great to see so many people that, that care about these issues um, and that care about the conservation of our planet, um, but also who care about the conservation of a small species of porpoise called the vaquita. So the first film that you guys are all gonna uh, uh, watch this evening is a film um, that I produced called Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Um, it is about the world's most endangered marine mammal called the vaquita. Um, I'm not gonna say too much, but I will just mention a few things real quick before we uh, play the film. Um, the first is that this film is actually, um, the first in a series of shorts, um, and we're actually working towards, uh, uh, putting this project together as a feature-length film. Um, so what you're seeing tonight is the first short film that we've released as a part of a much larger project, um, so we are embedded in this issue, uh, related to the conservation of the vaquita, and there will be more to come. So with that... Um, I will let the film play and let you guys learn a little something about uh, a really unique species of marine mammal. All right. This was the point in the event when we screened our short documentary, Searching for the Vaquita. If you haven't seen it already, you can head over to the show notes page uh, of this episode, and we'll be sure to embed the video link there so you can check it out. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash E-O-C-82. Now, we're going to jump right into the post-screening discussion session with Dr. Francis Gulland. I'm just going to give a quick update um, while these guys prepare the stage, um, and then I'm going to introduce our uh, special guest um, for the discussion session here. Um, So this this short film um, was released in May of this year, so just a few short months ago. Um, However, despite that, um, there have actually been some interesting developments uh, in the vaquita conservation world since then. Um, So the first thing I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna stress something that you saw in these text cards up there, right? So this film is about this large-scale effort to assess the population size of vaquita, right? And the results of that survey, which were announced in May, um, were that there are about 60 individual vaquitas remaining. right? Um, which is shocking. Um, however, um, that population estimate, that's as of December 2015. Um, that does not necessarily reflect how many vaquitas there are out there in the Gulf of California today. Um, and so, I mean, that, that, that is something important to stress. It is actually a big unknown, um, because as you saw in those text cards, and we'll delve into this in a little bit deeper in the discussion session, um, there is this illegal fishery um, for this fish species called the Tatwaba, and there has been a season of fishing for Tatwaba that has happened between the time when that population estimate, um, it, you know, the validity of that pop- population estimate which is as of December 2015 and now. Um, and so that number is actually a big question mark right now which is a little scary. Um, the other thing on a more positive note <laughs> is that, um, you know, we, we, we show how the Mexican government stood up and said, you know, we're gonna do something to save the vaquita, we're gonna impose this two-year ban on the use of gillnets throughout the, re- you know, uh, throughout, um, the entire range of the vaquita, um, which was unprecedented. No other government in history has put a blanket ban on all use of gillnets throughout the entire range of uh, marine mammal species. So that was really uh, an important step that was taken. Um, However, right as soon as they did that, you know, conservation groups started clamoring for them to make that gill net, extend that ban because two years is not enough to save the species. Um, A a vaquita breeding pair will only raise one calf every two years. Um, So two years is simply not enough to bring the species back. Um, Just, I wanna say two weeks ago, very, very recently, Um, The Mexican government announced that that gillnet ban within the range of the vaquita um, is now permanent So yeah, let's get a round of applause for that. That That's very um, Very positive development. Um, So with that I'm going to introduce um, our guest um, Dr. Francis Gulland Frances is the senior scientist at the Marine Mammal Center um, where she has been involved in veterinary care and rehab of stranded marine mammals since 1994. Um, She has served on the recovery teams for the endangered Hawaiian monk seal, as well as the Southern Sea Otter, um, and is currently a member of the International Committee for the Recovery of the Vaquita. Since 2011, Frances has also served as one of three commissioners at the Marine Mammal Commission which means that she was actually nominated by President Barack Obama to be one of the government's top officials focused on the protection and conservation of marine (laughs) mammals. So Francis, I'm just gonna start start the discussion off by asking you one quick question and then we're gonna take some questions from the audience. Um, But just to start things off, you were at that uh, that meeting um, for the International uh, Committee f- uh, for the recovery of the vaquita that we saw in the film. Um, maybe you can just give us a sense of what what, it, what did it feel like to be in that room? I mean, what, what was the atmosphere like? Uh, you know, What can you tell folks about that?
2: Well, I think um, I could speak to several rooms and several atmospheres. So that that particular meeting in May 2016, that was the time where the, the recovery team for the vaquita had to really announce to the world that there were 60 animals left. And it wasn't just that we were making this public announcement, this was the first time we actually had the Mexican Minister of the Environment and the governor for Baja in the room with us, so they could really to and fro and ask further questions. So, one of the concerns we have is always this question with politicians of, is it too late? you know, by imposing a gill net ban, there are serious um, impacts on the local community. So it'd be far easier to say, you know what, it's too late, there are only 60. Not only that, but partly we were reviewing the results of the survey, and the survey was a combination of the boat with the big eyes, but also acoustic monitoring with buoys that were placed throughout the refuge and have been there for 20 years, so we can get a sense of population trend over time. So it was a combination of looking and, and listening. But what has happened since that is that in April 2016, this year, so four months after the survey was completed at, at great expense, a great investment from the Mexican government, three vaquita were found dead in San Felipe. Um, two of them were floating on the water, the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society found them, and they called us, and I actually went down and necropsied those animals. And that was this sort of terrible feeling of, of walking over the border and meeting in a casino in, in Tijuana and getting this truck in with these carcasses on the back. And they were beautiful porpoises. The vaquita is the smallest porpoise, the smallest marine mammal, smallest porpoise, smallest cetacean, um, with a little black eyeliner around it. So it looks like our hub of porpoises out here but a little more elegant, a little bit more Latin, a little bit more refined, and here they were dead. You know, they were just dead because they had been caught in gill nets that were there really just to catch large fish and make money. They weren't being caught by subsistence fishermen. So so here we were in this room saying, you know, there, there were 60, we've got three dead, those are the ones we found, there's probably even less than 60. Um, so I think everyone in the room was very uh, nervous about how the the government would take this and um, We wanted to keep creating a feeling of hope that all the efforts were not too late um, So it was a, a mixed mood. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, and I mean it, it, it seems as if you guys were really able to um, To sort of break through right and, and reach those government officials who were there because of this recent announcement um, I mean What is your take on this most recent development and the fact that the Mexican government has now announced that the gillnet ban will be permanent?
2: Well, I think there's several things that everyone should be aware of here is that one, that gillnets can be banned by by our government. So the president of Mexico has actually used the word vaquita with President Obama. Last week, they were actually in a room together, and apart from immigration, elections, the wall, they also talked about vaquita, which is incredible. Um, But what we have to be aware of is that the, and we like to call them sort of the the good guys, the the honest fishermen that are trying to make a living in San Felipe, mostly what they do is they catch finfish and they catch shrimp, and the shrimp are blue shrimp and brown shrimp. And the biggest market for that shrimp is us in California. So that's another reason why we're here is because some of the market is Los Angeles, some is San Diego, but some is San Francisco. So we are providing the incentive for these guys to go fishing. And for years they figured out the quickest way to catch most shrimp is to put a gill net in the water. So here we are saying, you know we love the vaquita, we're in Cavallo Lodge, we're having white wine, we're sitting here and it's great and you guys cannot make a living because we're going to eat different shrimp. So, so it's really important that we become engaged and we understand that they need an alternative livelihood. So we need to actually invest in alternative fishing gear. So instead of just saying there's a ban, congratulations president, we need to do two things one is to ensure that ban is actually enforced which means people on the water and making sure that illegal fishing is not happening it can happen at night it can happen when the navy's not looking it can happen when sea shepherd is elsewhere so one is enforcing the ban and two is finding an alternative way for the fishermen to fish to produce shrimp and then for us to be willing to pay 10 times as much for this shrimp that's taking them 10 times as long and it's more expensive than to do. So we have to make a commitment too that will support them. Otherwise, it's easy to go out at night and to catch a big totoaba and make $8,000. And that trade is really being supported by the cartel. So there is a serious problem here with the Mexican government trying to do the right thing, but they are also fighting forces that we'll hear more about with elephants. But there's a very, very, strong support behind the illegal totoaba fishery.
0: Yeah, and you, you make a really good point there, which is that, you know, it's, you know I, I make that announce, you know, I made that announcement, everybody cheered, it's great, it's good news, it's fantastic that the Mes- Mexican government has made this gillnet ban permanent, but that does not mean that the vaquita is saved um, by any measure of, of what's happening down there. And, and I think it's important to remember that those, three dead vaquitas that you went down there to necropsy, those vaquitas died during a period of time when there was a gillnet ban. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, just taking the current situation, the way it's playing out and saying, this is the way it's permanently gonna be, that's not good for the vaquita. Um, And, you know, this this video that that we put together, I mean, it just sort of scratches the surface on the issue of the uh, illegal trade in the Tatuaba swim bladders, um, and you know that that right now it, it seems to me, based on what we've seen down there, is, is really what's driving um, the vaquitas' decline, um, which is is very unfortunate, and it adds, you know, several layers of complexity to, to what's going on down there. At this point, I want to kind of turn to all of you here um, and 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 see what questions you guys have um, for either Francis or myself. Uh, this is the first thing I saw right here.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm really happy to see that people are doing work on this. And my question refers to the range of the Vaquita. Is it the whole sea there,
0: or is it just the northern part of it? And is the refuge area the only place where they are? I doubt that's the case, but there's the refuge area where you computed the 60 number 60, and extracted, extrapolated to get the full population. How was the calculation done,
2: essentially? So the, the range of the vaquita now, sadly, is limited just to the very upper Gulf of California. So it's just San Felipe North. They used to extend further south. But as the population got smaller and smaller, just over the last 20 years, they're really only found in the very upper Gulf. And the survey um, did cover the entire range that we know Vaquita to be. The large ship could only be in deeper water, but the acoustic buoys I mentioned earlier, these are recorders that are anchored to the bottom and they listen for Vaquita clicks. So there's a whole array of those put out, even in shallow waters, right up to the very edge of the the Northern Gulf. And so even within the range that we call the Vaquita Refuge, which is a polygon-shaped area, there are only really now two hotspots where the vaquita were either heard or seen. So it's a very, very limited area, which the good news means that we should be able to protect that area. There should be a way to enforce um, a gill net ban and and, um, no poaching within that area.
4: In the film, you talked about how the um, vaquita cannot see the nets, the gill nets. Is there any way to make them visible to them like adding some sort of
2: that's a, thing that's a really good question because um, they not only they use their eyes but they also mostly find underwater objects by echolocation and and um, they'll bounce sound off nets so a practice that's used a lot in in the us to reduce bycatch in nets is to put what we call pingers along the surface of the nets and all the way along the top these the little um, transmitters and they'll just Transmit a sound, ping, 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 and then the porpoises will see where those well hear where that net is, and they'll avoid it. Um, and so, th- about 20 years ago, that was um, initiated. But the problem was that not all fishermen used them, and so the vaquita were essentially getting driven away from some of the nets where those pingers were used, and then entrapped in other um, in, in in other nets. And from what we know with harbour porpoises in Canada is if pingas are used, they really have to be used on every net, otherwise you just end up moving the animals away. But just in general, it's a really good point and um, always look for something positive. In Zanzibar now, there are a group that are using just plastic bottles and trying to encourage fishermen to tie plastic bottles onto every single net they put in the water, whether it's a gill net or monofilament nylon, and they're having great success. So, garbage can become useful. Yesterday or the day before, um, an interview with a woman from Southern California was talking about um, testing a floating pen refuge for the vaquita. Mm-hmm. Um, are you involved in that? And yes, actually what the... Are they, what are they, well, um, so when species have become critically endangered in the past, you know, down to, we're now looking at maybe under 50 individuals. The often, not often, but the last ditch resort has been to take some of those animals into a protected site. We tend to call it ex situ conservation, taking them away from their habitat and and putting them together and allowing them to be totally protected and then breed. So that was done for the California condor. It's been done for the Arabian oryx. Um, It's been done for the black-footed ferrets. So we know there are species that would have gone extinct if it wasn't for some individuals being placed somewhere in a sanctuary and protected, so it's obviously time. And that was another question that came up at this um, international recovery team meeting. Was I sat with the governor of Baja, who looked at me and he said, "You're a veterinarian. You work at the Myanmar Center. Can you just go catch them all and put them somewhere safe and take them to the Rammel Center?" I was like, "Well, there's a concept, you know, all of them." He said, "Well, yeah. And how soon could you do it? You know, I mean." These are guys that want things done, they're businessmen, so, um, so yes, we should consider this because it has been often the only way to save a species from extinction. The problems are one that the um, vaquita have never even been caught and, and survived, so the reason they are going extinct is they touch a net, they panic, they have um, very high heart rates, they're little porpoises, we think of them as the hummingbird of the cetacean world. So catching them is very, very likely to kill them and that's why they're dying in fishing nets. So to do it, you'd first of all have to catch one safely and then you'd have to put them somewhere. And so currently we know they're really well adapted to the upper Gulf of California. That's the only place they're found. So we need an environment that's the same as the upper Gulf. So we need a, a sanctuary within that area that has the right water temperature and the right fish coming in and out that they can feed on, which comes to, to net pens. So. So we are actually really evaluating what do we know from harbor porpoises. We know that they can be rehabilitated in Holland There's a very successful program for treating stranded harbor porpoises, and some of them have actually bred while they've been in in hospital and released. We also know that in China, the Yangtze finless porpoise is doing well in protected oxbows on the Yangtze River, and they were actually caught in seine nets, translocated, and placed in these oxbows. it has been possible for Hubba porpoises and for Yangtze porpoises to, to, to bring them in. Um, but we also know that the Dall's porpoise, a similar porpoise, pretty much dies every time you try and handle it. So we are working on a very sort of stepwise plan, if you like, to see if we can find a site within um, Baja that could be a sanctuary to work with partners that have handled other porpoises. Um, so the team from Holland, from Greenland, from Denmark, from China and then to um, think of a way that we could test it by just catching one single male, see if he survives, perhaps put a satellite tag on and see how he um, moves after being handled. And then if that works, then think about the feasibility of of could you do it and how many would you catch and where would you put it? But obviously it would be easier to protect the area that they are naturally found than to try and catch them and, and move them.
0: All right, we have time for just, just one more question.
2: I was very pleased to see that NOAA Fisheries had a boat in the uh, Northern uh, Sea, of Baja California, and wanted to know what regulatory jurisdiction they would have, and if there is anything that NOAA Fisheries could be encouraged to do, either politically or legally, that would improve the prognosis. So do you have any comments on I our do. own government's role uh, in this? Thank you. I actually um, could say that NOAA Fisheries has been incredibly supportive of all of Akita conservation efforts. So this cruise, the survey work, um, was actually led by Barbara Taylor from the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. They um, provided all the experts on uh, porpoise survey methods on acoustic tracking. So, they. Um, they were there, but as you say, as far as jurisdiction, that was all in Mexican waters. So the Mexican government invited NOAA Fisheries to um, assist them on the, to provide the expertise for that cruise. So that's one area that um, NOAA Fisheries is, is helping with the Quita monitoring over the years, not just, acu- not just the visual, but every year the acoustic survey is all done by two Mexicans, Armando and Lorenzo living in, in um, Ensenada, but all the data are actually analyzed by NOAA fisheries experts at the Southwest Fisheries Science Center. On top of that, NOAA fisheries is not just mammals, it's fisheries. So they are working really closely on, um, on legislation on import of fish that is caught on a, in a way that exceeds bycatch standards in US waters. So um, the head of NOAA fisheries has been working closely with the heads of both Inapesca and Conapesca. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of a, a, a love-hate game where they say we want to help you, but also a level of threat where the U.S. could ban imports of all Mexican seafood products based on the, the bycatch standard that's currently is low. Um, but that would huge, and if, you're probably familiar with the tuna dolphin um, uh, problems back in the '70s that um, had huge economic consequences. So, so NOAA Fisheries is very much in, involved there. Um, and then finally, right now, the Pascagoula Lab for NOAA Fisheries is actually providing training on developing alternative net types, and they've actually built some trawl nets, trawl nets that the um, Mexican fishermen from San Felipe are using. So they're providing um, two people on the ground to teach the fishermen how to use small trawls and stone nets. So it's really at multiple levels, but they're very, they're very much involved and working very closely with the Mexican counterparts.
0: Excellent, thank you guys for all the great questions. And thanks to Dr. Goland for being here. I have the honor now of introducing uh, our next guests. Um, so our next presentation um, is going to be about jaguar conservation in Panama. Um, and this will be a, a, a presentation, and we'll also be screening another short film um, called Path of the Jaguar, which um, I've been told that this is actually the very first audience to see this brand new film. So I'm gonna introduce our guests. We're joined here today by uh, Milton Yeselga, uh and Kimberly Craighead, who are the co-founders of Caminando. Caminando is a habitat connectivity initiative established in 2014, to protect threatened ecosystems and biodiversity in Panama. Milton was trained in biology in his home country of Ecuador and did his PhD research studying marine iguanas in the Galapagos, which sounds like a lot of fun. Um, He has since worked in the Department of Entomology at the University of California Berkeley and has studied the behavior of semi-aquatic snakes at the University of Texas at Tyler. Kimberly Craig's head career began in ornithology, um, working for the National Audubon Society. Um, Her master's degree project merged biology with anthropology to explore the implications of human behavior over our environment. Um, Kimberly is currently a PhD candidate at Antioch University and her research is focused on wildcat conservation and habitat use in human-dominated
3: landscapes. Good evening everyone, thank you for coming and thank you for the introduction and also nice color of your shirt. Um, This all planned. Tonight, in the next 10 minutes, you're gonna learn about Caminando as an organization. You're also gonna learn the research conservation that we do in Panama, focusing on our key species, which is the jaguar. And also, if I get you motivated enough you're gonna come at the end of our presentation. You're gonna come in and ask for um, how can you guys can help us. Caminando, as we all know Spanish, it means walking, hiking, trekking, because that's all what we do in Panama. We walk long hours and we walk several days at a time. We were established in 2014 and we are based in Oakland, California, and in Panama, obviously. What do we do, our mission is to protect the threatened tropical montane cloud forests and its biodiversity. And how not to come over here? The beauty of the things. But where is this, uh, this forest? It's in, in the narrowest section of the Panama Canal, as you can see the little dot, the yellow one over there. It's about, 50, it's about 50 kilometers between in the ocean, the Atlantic and the, in the Pacific. And we were told that in a nice day, which we haven't seen it yet, you can see both sides. Because you can see both sides, the Atlantic and the Pacific. We are hoping one day we'll do that. So what, what is important in our location is, as you can see the green marks over there, is we are in the, at the end of the Choco-Darien Eco-Region which is one of the most diverse ecosystems in the world. How do we do this? We all are familiar with satellite pictures nowadays. So as you can see, we have Caminando East, Caminando West, and in our thoughts was if since we are connectivity initiative, we can connect these two habitats, avoiding this the light green the light green that you see in the, on, on the picture is areas that have been devastated due to deforestation. So our mission in a, in a way is try to connect these patches and make it a uniform forest. This is a better, a better picture of, our, of area. This is the Mamoni Valley Preserve it's in, this, in the grids and north we have the Gunayala territory, and on the, on the side, on the left side of your screen, you going to have the Chagras National Park. Those are the two areas that are pristine, and what we we're trying to do is keep it going south and make it as pristine as it used to be once upon a time. For now, our focus of the species is the jaguar. That's what we're gonna call it umbrella species, but later on, I'm gonna come back to this. This job, obviously, is not done just for three or four person that, uh, people that uh, are in our organization, it's a teamwork. One of the biggest roles uh, is the Mamoni Valley Preserve. Help, is helping us to do, first of all, the research, but also they have a greatest initiative. In this, in this 11,500 hectares of land, they are trying to work in a model of ecological um, enhancement, doing reforestation, bringing the native forest that was up on a the time and they were present over there, and maybe in the 60 years from now, we will see the original flora that it used to be. Another partner is Airtrain, they do biological leadership, promote harmonious um, coexistence between nature and people. And then we have our last uh, team, team player is Jaguara, which is a research partner. We do research on jaguars and also they work in jaguar human conflict. But why Panama and the biodiversity that exists in Panama? So let's get a perspective really quick. South America back in tens of million years ago, it was isolated, just like Australia. Animals were tame and they were unique. Until something happened, Panama, the uh, Panama, raised over the water, and then forms this bridge. And what happened then? Animals from north started migrating south, and animals south started migrating north. This is the big migration that ever happened. But as in any migration or any dispersal of animals, they took over other animals. And since in South America they were. Uh, tame the animals from north, they were more aggressive and they took over them. So now the 40 to 60% of the individuals that are present in, uh, in South America, they are pretty much descendants from the North Americans, including the jaguar. But extinction happens. Extinction happens and as a Darwin called it, you know, the strongest will survive. But get, somebody did a, the worst job ever. Yeah, humans are the guilty of the, the more damage to the species. So let me tell you a little bit about the Tropical Mountain Cloud Forest. It's a beautiful land where you can spend hours, days, even in the rain, even in the cloud, but it's amazing. We like it. It's the, the definition of, of the Tropical Mountain Cloud Forest is that, immersing layers of clouds. It goes from altitudes from 500 meters to 1,500 meters. If you are in South America, it will be a little bit higher. And the annual rainfall is about 1,700 to 3,000 millimeters and temperature ranges from 20 to 30, 20 in the mountains, 30 in the valleys. What makes this forest so special is the most threatened ecosystem globally. There is an estimate of 0.14% of the entire surface of the planet makes this forest just a comparison Oregon I think is about the size of that and that's around the world the function of the the forest is to gather water and the water will give you rivers creeks etc there is lavish vegetation panama itself it has over 9000 vascular plants the high diversity is incredible and the endemism also is high 12.3% of plants, 5%, 5.5% of fauna. It's important to understand why the jaguar, why you guys pick up the jaguar. Well, this is the reason. It's an umbrella species. And an umbrella species by definition is the species that provide protection for other species because usually they have long home ranges, they are migratory, they have low lifespan, But the most important thing is once you take this animal out of the ecosystem, you create imbalance on it and also reduce the biodiversity. In the 1960s, 1970s, about 15 to 18 individuals per year were killed because of the fur. After that was banned, from the 1990 to 2014, 230 individuals have been killed. About an average per year, 10 individuals per year. But what we have from last year, 2015, 23 individuals. So the number seems like it's it's increasing. And so far in 2016 we have 15 and still the year has to, has few more months. And the reason why is because deforestation mainly. Deforestation what causes is the habitat gets patchy, animals get isolated, they can't communicate safely between patches, and also the prey get depleted for illegal poaching. Illegal poaching for the prey and also for individuals. So unfortunately, Panama is the second in the Americas to have the, the biggest deforestation, followed by Guatemala and also Brazil. We don't know much about the jungle, but the indigenous people know, and they know where to find the paths of the jaguar. So we follow them. The species, is disappearing, has been called near threatened, and there is about, again, an estimate, I think it's 15,000 individuals in the entire America. And those are just estimates. It's hard to find the jaguar in the first place. So our estimates, and maybe less, that's that's our guess.
4: I just wanted to follow up with a little bit more about the jaguar and um, my dissertation research which is part of Caminando's long-term biological monitoring program in Mamonee Valley Preserve. The jaguar is the largest cat in the Americas. Um, As Milton said, it's considered near threatened by the IUCN. And there are approximately 15,000, but that's really a very rough estimate. Nobody nobody really knows. Um, And these cats, they're found in a wide variety of habitats, including the cloud forest. Uh, what's really unique about the jaguar is that it's actually, there are no subspecies of this cat. It's considered a single species throughout its range. The jaguar have been extirpated from more than 50% of their historic range. Again, this is primarily due to habitat loss. Um, poaching is an issue over hunting, and also uh, the retaliation killings for either real or thought to be livestock killings. Panama is a very critical place. It's a very critical country for the future of Jaguar. Um, It acts as as a link between populations throughout Central America, and also between South and Central America. Panama is considered one of the most threatened corridors in the region, Again, primarily due to deforestation and habitat loss. Really, people don't know much about the mammals in this country. For some reason, it's been overlooked, and um, especially with the jaguar. Research and data on these cats in Panama is really, really lacking. there have been a few studies, um, but not very much has happened, and the population estimates, again, are very rough based on little data part of our focus is to look at how they move through this fragmented landscape. So within Panama, we're focused on the Mamoni Valley Preserve, and that's because it really represents a model system to uh, investigate landscape-level connectivity. It's, um, as you see in the map, it's situated between the Chagres National Park and the Gunayala Territory. Both areas are are protected and relatively pristine. Um, The 11,500-hectare area of the valley is considered a buffer zone, which in this context means that it borders the protected areas and enhances the protection of these protected areas. Jaguars, as with other spotted or striped cats, can be identified by their patterns As the film pointed out, their their spot patterns are like fingerprints, like human fingerprints, and an individual cat can be identified by the patterns of its spots, which are also called rosettes. We have just recently returned a couple weeks ago from Panama, where we were deploying cameras for a pilot study. Literally, within two weeks, I think it was two weeks to the day that we set up the cameras for the pilot study, this jaguar walked by, and it's the very first image. Again, within two weeks, it's pretty amazing. And the jaguar and Caminando, Milton and I, thank you. And, uh...
0: So we have one more film and presentation um, for the evening. This final film shows some of the work being done by an organization called the, the Big Life Foundation. And we're extremely lucky to have uh, Amy Baird here. Um, Amy is the Associate Director for uh, the Big Life Foundation um, here in the United States. Before she started working for uh, the Big Life Foundation, Amy spent four years defending marine wildlife with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. She has worked with uh, the Save Our Wild Salmon Coalition as well as Renewable Northwest, um, in addition to volunteering for the Oregon chapter of the Sierra Club. So welcome, Amy.
5: Thank you very much for that introduction, but I know rather than just focus exclusively on the work that Big Life is doing, start I want to start a little bit with a 30,000 foot level view and really talk about sort of the state of elephant conservation. So when people often ask me, you know, my friends and my family, we get together and they say, so how are the elephants doing? It's a really depressing answer to say, actually, they're dying. It's not a really rosy picture over there right now. And it's a really horrifying statistic. Some of you may have heard about the 96 Elephants campaign uh, that's been so public, and thank God for that. Uh, But the statistic is 96 elephants a day are killed for their ivory. At that rate, you know, if you look at the most recent census study, there was one that was commissioned just in the last couple of years by uh, Paul Allen's foundation, and the most recent census data says somewhere in the 400,000-ish range across Africa. So that includes... Uh, forest elephants and African elephants. Um, At that rate, 96 a day, that's, uh, I know the film said 15 years, but honestly it's more like 10. So we're looking at a decade left. Big Life operates on the far eastern side and the central area there in Kenya. We're in southern Kenya and northern Tanzania. We were the first cross-border anti-poaching organization actually in East Africa. So knowing how horrible the situation is and just how rapidly we are losing elephants, uh, when Nick Brandt, Big Life's co-founder and the photographer of all of these black and white photos that you're about to see, um, asked me to help support his efforts, it was a no-brainer to say, yes, of course, how could I not? Um, I don't wanna live on a planet that doesn't have elephants. I grew up worshiping elephants and reading about elephants and loving elephants and I don't know any, any child that doesn't. And it's, it's hard to imagine that, that if I ever have children, my children may not get to see them in the wild the way that I've been very fortunate to do. So that's my personal motivation for caring about this. And it's also uh, true for uh, Nick, the photographer. These are truly special animals. And I know that uh, in the conservation community, there's often a focus on megafauna species and not necessarily the vaquita, which is equally important. And the jaguar and elephants often, often dominate. But these are symbolic species. And I feel like if we can't uh, save the elephant, we have very little hope of ever helping the vaquita or, or any other animal that needs our protection. So I think that uh, they are definitely worthy of the attention right now. And that is why Big Life exists today, doing its work. Nick's photography has focused exclusively on African wildlife and landscapes over the last couple of decades and he has been horrified to see just every time he returns the elephants that he's come to photograph just disappearing on every trip and he finally decided in 2010 when Big Life was formally uh, formed we actually merged with an organization that was on the ground already for a number of years so it wasn't like we were starting from scratch but when we expanded and grew into what it was to in 2010 to become the Big Life Foundation, it was because Nick and Richard, who you saw in the film, decided it was better to be angry and active than angry and passive. And I think that's a very important uh, backstory to, to what Big Life is doing there. One of um, our RMSI Rangers actually recently went on an outreach campaign with the Thin Green Line Foundation and did a tour of Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, He visited with um, a bunch of students and told told me a story when he got back on Skype. He was horrified to learn, upon talking to students in Singapore, that they were under the impression that Ivory was just picked up off the ground. So there's obviously a lot of work to be done. And uh, on the demand side of the equation, luckily there's a lot of really wonderful work that's happening, particularly in Asia right now and in China with WildAid. Some of you are familiar with them. They're a fantastic group. So, on a slightly more positive note, China recently did announce that it would join with the United States in banning commercial ivory products. This is probably the biggest announcement of its kind. Yeah. We don't actually know what that will look like yet, but the fact that it's been said publicly by the president of China is a huge step in the right direction. So we're very hopeful that we will start to see an impact on the demand side Um, while we focus on the supply side on the other side of the world. Um, While we're talking about the demand, I just want to note some of you might be surprised to learn that the number two source of demand for ivory is actually the United States. And it's still mind-blowing to me. I've spent a lot of time researching this, trying to understand how. Because obviously, elephants are endangered. it's, It's illegal to import endangered species. But in some parts of Africa, they're not listed as endangered, and you can, there's a whole bunch of complicated loopholes that boil down to hunting trophies and antiques still being able to come into the country. And because it's really difficult to regulate and date and know where like, the particular source of a piece of ivory comes from, it's been sort of a fluid uh, market, which is really frustrating, obviously. Um, so currently there's four states, I believe, Possible that we've got five now, but the last time I looked, it was four states that had been able to pass state-level bans on ivory. And luckily, California, give yourselves a round of applause. You guys are right up there with uh, Washington State passed a ballot measure last summer, as did New York and New Jersey. So that's four states. Um, Oregon, Hawaii, Vermont, and a few others are working on ballot campaigns right now. And actually, uh, if you know anybody that lives in the great state of Oregon, where I am from, please encourage your friends and family to vote yes on measure 100. Because if Oregon joins California and Washington in banning state level or statewide ivory sales, it will create an entire western wall that will block ivory coming in across the Pacific. So that's a huge step in the right direction. And I know that the federal agencies are working on sort of a national policy to, to catch up with that. But Luckily at the state level, some some movement is happening. So back to big life. If there's no demand for ivory and no one can make any money by killing elephants, maybe the species has a shot. But the stakes are higher now than ever before. And that's a good thing. Particularly in Kenya where big life operates, the penalty has increased. So for poaching and trafficking of ivory, it used to be you'd get a slap on the wrist or maybe a small fine but it's become uh, significantly steeper with the Wildlife and Conservation Management Act of 2014. So now if you're caught trafficking or poaching ivory in Kenya, you serve serious jail time or very significant fines. And this has proven to be a really effective deterrent because if you're gonna spend the next decade or two of your life in jail, you might think twice about something that otherwise would have just gotten you a small fine. But the other thing that is helping deter the supply side are groups like Big Life. We're not the only ones operating down there, but we do have one of the most significant operations in southern Kenya, one that we're very proud of. The government agencies do a fantastic job with the national parks and at the federal level in Kenya, and we partner very closely with them. But the reality is is that their resources, much like in the United States, are stretched very thin, and so they're not able to monitor all of the areas in between the national parks. So that's where groups like Big Life can really play a role by working with the local communities. This is particularly important because elephants migrate outside of national parks, right? They don't stay constricted to small, beautiful national parks where we like to visit. They've, they migrate thousands of miles, which leads them through... Areas that are very densely populated by humans, and that's another theme that I picked up from the other presentations tonight, this human-wildlife conflict issue is the new big issue for the area where we operate, and we'll get to that. It turns out that hiring the local community to protect their own ecosystems works really well. And that's the heart of our ethos. If conservation supports the people in a very direct and meaningful way, then people are far more likely to support conservation. As a result, we currently employ over 300 local Maasai, making us the largest employer in the entire Amboseli ecosystem. Our rangers intervene and prevent wildlife crimes from occurring whenever possible, and in the rare instance they can't, they make sure the criminals are arrested and taken to court and serve the full-time. So we actually hire a full-time prosecutions advisor that goes to court and makes sure that all of these folks that do get caught for crimes serve the full sentence. We're very proud of having aerial patrols. It makes a huge difference. It's a very vast and bumpy terrain. The land cruisers are critical, but having eyes in the sky makes a, makes a really big difference. So as we said, 31 outposts, 13 vehicles, tracker dogs, two airplanes, five mobile units. Last year, we lost just two elephants to poaching. This year, so far, we've lost none. It's certainly a dramatic turnaround in an ecosystem that otherwise, five years ago, saw numbers absolutely plummeting. I don't have the data because it wasn't tracked very closely at the time, but the graph looks like good steep downward trajectory. So that's the good news. And of course, the good news has uncovered a whole can of worms. It's slightly more complicated than that. So I wanna shift to this conversation about human-wildlife conflict, because I really think At least in the small corner of of Africa that that Big Life operates, that's the next frontier for conservation challenges. This is twofold, and it directly relates to climate change. Part of the reason these farms are sprouting up here is to the south. In Tanzania, you have Kilimanjaro. Glacial runoff is increasing and providing more water to the ecosystem. And also because there's less grass as a result of climate change, they aren't able to graze cattle as successfully as the Maasai used to. They're traditionally a herder culture, not a farming culture. So this is a significant cultural change in addition to being a change to the land. Um, So these farms have really popped up at an unprecedented rate and at a a very surprising rate to everybody. Uh, The Maasai have really taken to farming because you can irrigate, so you can control the supply of water, you can store it, which you can't do if you're grazing cattle over thousands of hectares. Here's where it gets complicated. See all those little red hashes? Those are all the sites where we've had elephants raiding crops. Because if you're a migrating elephant and you're leaving the Amboseli National Park heading east and you pass through a tomato field, that looks delicious. Turns out they like corn a lot too, and watermelons. Take a step, though, and imagine that you're a poor African farmer. You earn just a couple thousand of dollars a year from your meager crop of tomatoes or beans or corn. And you walk out one night and you see that one big bull elephant has completely devastated your entire source of income for the year. You might be pissed. You might want to throw a spear at that elephant. And that's what's happening now. We're dealing with this. This is a result of human-wildlife conflict, we're calling it human-elephant conflicts, to be specific. Just this year alone, while we've lost no elephants to poaching, we've lost six elephants to human-elephant conflict. Last year we lost eight. Which is why we now hand out hundreds of thunder flashes to farmers to help them uh, protect their own farms. These are harmless, noisy pyrotechnics that the elephants hate. We also have created a ranger unit that specifically focuses on crop rating prevention and intervention. In the last three years, Big Life Rangers have responded to over 2,100 incidents. It's working. Uh, our crop rating rates are down, but they're not going down by enough. And part of that is because farms are going in faster than we can keep up with them. Even on a continent the size of Africa, there isn't enough room anymore for both humans and wildlife in the same areas. Wildlife are now coming into increasing conflict as they compete for grass, water, and space to move freely. There is something that could fundamentally transform the ecosystem where we work, and I'll go back to that other slide. It's definitely not sexy, as it is to talk about anti-poaching. But it turns out that fencing is a really good idea used strategically. This is twofold. It's to prevent the elephants from getting into the crops and thus being susceptible to getting speared. It's also to prevent the farms from encroaching on wilderness areas. So the good news is we've got a fence going in and the first fence posts will go in the ground next month. It's expensive to do, and it's time consuming, but it will make a difference. And we're hopeful, particularly in that Kamana corridor where it's such a narrow little area, that we'll be able to to make a difference and stop the human-wildlife conflict that's happening there. In the meantime, continuing to do all of the other programs that we do, like anti-poaching. Um, we also have our Maasai Olympics, which are happening again this December. It'll be the third time we're doing the Maasai Olympics, which help the local Maasai tribe have an alternate, alternative way of demonstrating their manliness to the local ladies without going on lion hunts. Winners of the top competitions go home with a big bull cow. The winner of the, the long distance races actually gets to compete in the New York Marathon. So it's a huge deal for the, the local community there. And I'm very excited to get to go and, and watch this year as a spectator. So this all feels very overwhelming. And I just I want to try and end on, on a more positive note, because I know watching this film and, and hearing about all of these issues can feel really depressing. And it, it feels like sometimes maybe the odds are a little great. But in just the past year that I've worked on this campaign, I've seen remarkable changes, and it's It's got me feeling optimistic. Maybe a little naively, but I'm feeling optimistic about it. You know, from state-level campaigns to end ivory sales to similar federal efforts, China's desire to end ivory consumption, Kenya's recent decision to burn its entire 105-ton stockpile of ivory sent a huge message to the world that ivory has no value except on the face of an elephant. These are all very dramatic steps forward in addressing the demand side of the equation. And I've seen from the work that Big Life is doing that with the community fully involved, we can stop the supply side. We just have to keep fighting for it. And I believe that the battle for elephants is one we can win. Great.
0: That concludes um, this evening's program. Um, just to kind of wrap things up, you know, something that Amy mentioned really uh, struck a chord with me. Um, Amy, you mentioned that the, the founders of Big Life Foundation, um, they, they had this realization that you know, it's impossible not to be angered by this situation. And it's impossible not to see uh, uh, and be exposed to this information that we've seen up here and not feel anger and frustration. But you can be angry and passive or you can be angry and take action and do something to resolve these issues. All of you in this wonderful audience here uh, this evening have the opportunity to uh, act on this information that, that we have shared with you. So all of our presenters will be outside accepting questions. Thanks to all of you for coming out um, and for caring about these really important conservation issues. Um, thank you to the Sausalito Film Series for hosting this amazing event. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Alright, that was this past weekend's Wildlife Awakening event, hosted by the Sausalito Film Series. It really was a fantastic lineup of presenters. I was very interested to learn about the work being done by both Caminando and the Big Life Foundation, um, and, and I actually hope to follow up with both of those organizations to do more comprehensive podcast episodes focused on the important conservation work these groups are doing. Of course this was a film screening event, uh, as well. So you're really only getting half of the message by listening to this audio podcast here. Um, so to get the full experience, um, you should head on over to the show notes page where you can watch, um, at least two of those videos that we screened, um, we'll have up there on the show notes page. Um, and you can see some photos uh, from the event as well. So those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC82. And if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can head on over to the iTunes store, search for Eyes on Conservation, and click subscribe. We also really appreciate it when folks leave us an honest review and rating for the show on iTunes. This really helps us reach a wider audience with the show. Um, So if you want to help us spread the word, this is a really quick and easy way to help out. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, with audio recording assistance from Teague Harry. The Humidors are a killer funk band from San Francisco, and their bass player, who is also my cousin, was kind enough to host me on this recent trip to the Bay Area for this film screening event. Search for The Humidors in iTunes and check out their most recent album.